Welcome to Consciously Cannabis. I'm Carly, host of Consciously Clueless, the podcast bringing you this series. Together with guests, I'll be exploring cannabis through lenses of sustainability, mindfulness, and plant-based living. Bonus content from Consciously Cannabis will be available at patreon.com slash consciouslycarly. Take a hit or don't. All are welcome here. And let's get lit. Well, I am honored to welcome you to this new series on the podcast, and I'm really excited to be talking with you. Me too. Happy to be here. So I have been smoking weed for a while, but it is only Mm -hmm. within the last couple of years where my thoughts around sustainability have evolved, and I really turned that into my passion in life and my coaching in this podcast that I connected the idea of sustainability and marijuana. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. love that we get to have a conversation about that because I know a lot of the things you're going to teach me here today are going to be new for me and probably new for a lot of listeners. Absolutely. Well, and you almost were talking about this on a previous podcast with Emily Kyle. She was talking about growing your own cannabis in your backyard. And if you think about that, as opposed to the traditional pharmaceutical model where you know, if someone's on opiates, those are usually grown in like Afghanistan or somewhere else internationally, then it's shipped here. There's this whole international supply chain to get you that medicine in Mm. a plastic bottle, rather than you just grow the cannabis in your own backyard. And you can make your own topicals, you can make your own extracts. Some of it might seem a little daunting at first, but I'll be honest, making your own edibles at home, making your own oil for topicals, it is so easy. There are so many products out there to help you now too, if you want that help. Right. Uh, it's honestly, if you can bake, you can make cannabis butter, cannabis topicals, <laughs> cannabis. It, yeah. <laughs> I love it as a different to the traditional model of pharmaceuticals. Nothing against pharmaceuticals. They have a right. role, but like 100%. if you can use cannabis and just grow it yourself, that is so much more sustainable. It really doesn't get more sustainable than that. So where did this passion come from for you? Because this is your life now is sustainability in cannabis. I was reading the, you sent me a executive summary and I was looking through like the key takeaways. I didn't read the whole thing, I'll admit. Oh yeah, from the NCIA white paper that I did. I work with the National Cannabis Industry Association on a white paper for the cannabis industry and hemp industry. It's not just for businesses, it's for regulators too. Consumers can also have some nice takeaways from it. Yeah, but, um, it was an yeah. amazing resource. And it made me think about things with sustainability and cannabis that I really had never even considered. So where did this passion mm-hmm. come from for you? Where does this start? It's really, it's my whole life. It's past statute of limitations now. So I think they'd be okay with me talking about it. But my parents grew in our backyard when I was a little kid before it was even medically legal. You know, okay. This was nearly 30 years ago. So right. they're in the clear, can't get busted for it at this point. And <laughs> Not ratting out know, mom and dad here. <laughs> exactly. But I was brought up with that omerta. Don't talk about this to anybody, not even your best friends, because you don't know who they will tell. And no one told me about child protective services could take me away from my parents. But I realize now that is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And it happens all the time. And it is so messed up that kids can get taken from their parents just because they're legally growing cannabis. It doesn't have to be illegal. It can be legal and they can still have the kids taken away. It is so ridiculous. So yeah, it's a huge risk. Really glad I didn't blab to any of the wrong people. Definitely yeah, good a job. Definitely pulled my buddies, but you know, like, yeah, like I made it. 
But yeah, it's been my whole life. So I grew up around cannabis. I it was never really this threatening, mystified thing for me. It was just something that my parents used. I realized very medically, like retrospectively, definitely was medical the whole time. Wasn't this adult use recreational thing. You know, no one was getting crazy high. Mm-hmm. But um, and then for me, it shifted when I was uh, about 19. I got busted uh, for possession. Um, it was ridiculous, like a lot of people's first time possessions are. Like I had an Is this on in- me. Okay. Yep, California. So I got off super lucky. I'm also a white dude and yeah. I recognize how much that helped me, mm-hmm. which is also I can I swear on here? Oh, go for it. <laughs> it's bullshit. Honestly, complete bullshit. Huh. Like I saw firsthand how much money the state was willing to waste to teach me a lesson. And yes. I did community service. I paid a fine. It was for an stupid. Eighth? Yep. Well, I also had alcohol with me underage. That was a whole separate thing. And I'm honestly glad the state was much harsher about that than the cannabis. The DA was basically like, he had an ape. Okay, I guess we got to charge him. But the alcohol was the bigger concern, which like, cool, it should be. You know, I was just totally going to say, that ape. hurts, right? <laughs> yeah, like, it's not like other states I've been to where I, I was told in Wisconsin, your first DUI is a warning. I don't know if that's true. I haven't looked it up, but some states have different views on alcohol. I'm glad California at least views it really harshly, which they should right. because it's a poison. It's legal, totally legal, but like, it's so much more harmful than cannabis. And that also really draws me to cannabis. I'm a drinker. I was a bartender for years. I brew my own alcohol at home, but I keep my drinking to a minimum with cannabis. Right. So I really love I don't know if you'd have these in Minnesota, but there's this beer company, Lagunitas. They make incredible IPAs, but they also have a cannabis company in California. So they have Lagunitas cannabis beers. There's no alcohol. It's just pop water with cannabinoids. I love it. Yeah. And they're not the only company like Paps Blue Ribbon. I've seen Paps cannabis drinks as well. So I really like for me as someone who grew up or not grew up, but like I worked in bars for a while. I love that we have these new alternatives for people where like you could theoretically go to a bar and you're not going to have to get drunk. You could just drink a cannabis product with your friends. That's the future I want to see. So fun because that's a new thing happening in Minnesota after legalization is that I can go to the bar in my small town in Northern Minnesota and get a Fulton, which is like a local brewery around here, Mm -hmm. a Fulton THC lime drink in a bottle. And there's like a bunch of companies popping up and I'm alcohol free now for about four years. So I, thank you. I was always at the bar, like guys are missing out on me. I'm just drinking water, but it's not because I don't want to give you my money. It's because I don't want pop or beer. Mm -hmm, So now that mm -hmm, I can, I'm mm -hmm. like, this is smart. Take my money. I am so happy to be at the bar and have a bottle in my hand. And it's so fun to have a little treat. What a world. Have you checked out any of the hop waters? I don't know if you have a lot of those Mm -mm. Minnesotas out here. We're getting this surge of hop water products. like the Lagunitas things I mentioned, but no cannabis either. It's just hop water. It's been big in Europe for years, especially among athletes who missed alcohol, but can't drink because they're intensive athletes. Um, Yeah. It's basically rather than dealkalizing beer, it's just hops in mineral water. That's so Um, smart. So Yeah, no, it's a brilliant idea. And you can use different hop varietals, like with beer, to give it different flavors. It's so cool. I love that we have these options now for people, both with and without cannabis. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I think I derailed you, which is pretty classic. No, but no, you're fine. how did we go fine. from you getting possession charge at nineteen to being yeah. like, "This so is my life"? As well, that really opened my eyes. That was when I was like, "Okay, this is a problem." Like I said, I saw the the racism firsthand. Like I got off as a white guy, but if I was a black guy in the same county guaranteed I would have went away for the maximum sentence. The DA being like, oh, whatever, it was just an eighth, might have been, who knows? I don't want right. to denigrate a public official that I can't even remember the name of, but I just know how different it is with the skin color. And that was why when I got to college, originally I was being a psych major and I was like, this doesn't feel right. And then I mm -hmm. got to politics and I was like, oh, this feels right. Then I started writing uh, papers about drug policy legalization and it really felt right. Uh, and then when I was at San Jose State, I saw this flyer for this group, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I had been wanting to start a chapter of normal because I knew about normal. I was like, yeah, normal. They're great. They want to legalize cannabis. Then I was like, wait, SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, they're like normal for all drugs? Wow. Yes. Okay. So I joined SSDP at this really miraculous time. Like the chapter president was graduating. They didn't know who was going to take over the chapter. I just walked in the door and I was like, yo, I was going to start a normal chapter. How about this? And the universe yeah, was like, here right you in. go. Exactly. And through SSDP, I became a regional director for the Prop 19 campaign that year. That was uh, wow. 2010. That was the first effort to legalize cannabis in the modern times anywhere in the US. There was a previous big push back in the 70s, but since the 70s, Prop 19 was the first big push for adult use, came 3% away, closer mm. than anybody thought, and clearly paved the way for what happened two years later in Washington and Colorado. And now we know the story. Most of the country is on board with legalized cannabis now. Right. Um, but I was really helping push that ball forward. I, and no offense, Prop 19 was the best bill I'd seen up to that point. Yeah. But the bills we're seeing now, Prop 64 in California, it was divisive. It's not perfect. It was so much better than Prop 19. I will say mm. that much. In, in its defense, it wasn't Prop 19. Prop 19 was like 10 pages long. It had it was pretty well thought out, but it, there could have been a lot more there. Uh, For listeners that might it. not know what that is, can you give a little bit of sure. insight? Yeah. Yeah. On Prop 19 or... Sure. Just what is a, what does that mean? Uh, so Proposition 19 was this bill back in 2010 to legalize cannabis in California. And what I was trying to get at is it had a lot of great ideas in it, but no initiative is perfect. And mm -hmm. from 2010 to 2016, when we passed, you know, Prop 64, the next try to legalize it in California, we had a lot more time to think about what should be in that bill, how that bill should, or how that initiative should look. Right. So that's why if you look around the country, Every state that legalizes it, they tend to learn from the states that tried before. They're going to borrow and find things that like work that didn't work. So there's this thing where whoever legalizes cannabis or other drugs first, they're just trying to get it done. They're just right. trying to get a bill out there. They might have to appease law enforcement and other groups who are like, I don't want to see this happen. And then other states can be like, well, look, nothing happened in XYZ state. See, we don't have to do all that crazy stuff. So there's a benefit for states that come later, but at the same time, someone's got to be first. Someone's got to do it. So I'm glad California was like really pushing that envelope. And my experiences in the criminal justice system, my experience with my parents, it's really what led me into my activism. Mm. Um, the way I view it is with cannabis legalization, we had this first wave of people trying to legalize it. Those were like your OG growers back in the 60s, the surfers sneaking seeds back to the US. They are the true OGs who started everything. All the right. first breeding projects, all the first cultivars that we now love. 
But then they started going to jail for growing a plant. That's when the second wave of activists came around. That's when you got your Jack Herrera's, your Dennis Perones, your people who were like, hey, no one should go to jail for growing a fucking plant. And maybe we should be able to use this medically for AIDS, for HIV, for cancer, for all kinds of things. So then you got like this kind of third wave coming in of Wall Street, basically, the green Mm. rush. The activists took the ball to a point where we got legalization. This is now legal industry. And who has the knowledge and expertise to get it further? That's when companies start hiring folks from outside the industry. Companies are grabbing folks from Target, from other big industries, because they have the knowledge to scale businesses. But if you look back, every phase of legalization, there's been a different group kind of pushing things forward, for better or worse. Like There was a lot of clashes that I felt as an activist fighting for legalization. Mm. The biggest argument I heard in the Prop 19 days was, I don't want to legalize it. My friends will lose money. No one's going to be on the same page. With each of these groups kind of pushing things forward to more legal, more normalized, there's going to be clashes and there's going to be clashes between those groups. I will never forget the conference that I was at where I heard an investor say, hey, you activists did great, but now you need our money. So you got to come to us. Just fully laying it out there. Hello, late stage capitalism. Yeah. It's wow, man. You're not winning any friends here. Uh, It was actually like an activist conference. It wasn't even a business conference. And this guy is just coming out the gate. This this is how it's going to be. Yeah. um, Not going to out what conference that was. This was almost a decade ago. It was a long time ago. Things evolve and shift. We know. still there. Yeah. But that mentality is still there. Like you have those people in the suits coming in who are like, I don't know about these dreadlock guys. The dreadlock guys are like, I don't know about these suit guys, but we need to come together. Well, girls too, I should say. It's not just guys. There's all kinds of people in this industry. Of It's like the most diverse industry I have ever worked in. It's also pretty much mm. the only industry I've worked in. But if you look compared <laughs> to other industries, like it's generally more representative. Yeah, It's not great. It's not 50-50 female ownership. But for a while, there were more women executives in cannabis than other industries. Then wow. it shifted and I think it became less. I don't know where it's at now, but like this industry, at least for a while, was much more diverse than other industries. So I love that about it. It's wonderful. It's our strength. And we need to come together because look at cannabis. It's a uniter. It it brings people together from all over. It brings together punk rockers with rock and rollers, with hip hoppers. Like It really does. I've been in mosh pits at metal shows. I've gone to scotches. I have been in all these different subcultures over the years. And like, what do all these people do? They all smoke (laughs) weed. And like, they smoke weed together. So we just need to unite and do what this plant does, brings us together. And And I think that will also help sustainability because if we can come together on different things, smoking weed, we can get together and talk about our differences, like different views on on climate change, different views on how to be more sustainable. Like I'm, I honestly came into cannabis sustainability in a weird way. I was a journalist for years. I've been writing all kinds of different articles for different outlets. And one of my buddies is working for a vape company. And he's, look, I know you've been researching vaporizers for a long time as a journalist. In my opinion, more about this than anyone else I know. Would you be willing to lobby for us around this issue in California? So at the time, we had a problem in our regulations where all cannabis waste had to go to the landfill, no matter what it was, battery, e-waste, recyclable, whatever it was. If it was cannabis waste, send it to the landfill. Even worse, you had to make it unusable and unrecognizable first. So in the case of like vape pen and its battery, horror stories I've heard from actual waste processors were bud tenders taking them out back, smashing them with a hammer, 
One company threw batteries into a bucket of paint, which began to smolder and smoke. Sorry, not quite smolder. It didn't catch fire, but it smoked. It produced smoke. I've heard other horror stories with non-vape products where people make their edibles unusable by soaking them in bleach because then, well, you can't use them. But anyone digging in the trash doesn't realize that. And now you've created hazmat. That's now a hazardous waste. So the state basically gave people no rules whatsoever about how this rendering was supposed to take place, just that it was supposed to happen. And even worse, initially, California said all the rendering had to happen at the facility that produced the waste rather than a licensed facility. So like, like, none, like literally Starbucks, none of that makes sense. That'd be like every Starbucks, every McDonald's processing all their old waste on site. So McDonald's, your slurpee mach- or sorry, your uh, smoothie machine or uh, sorry, shake machine breaks down, take it out back break it down till it fits in your trash. And then like, it's bonkers. It's utterly insane that all cannabis waste had to be processed on site. It makes no sense at all. So that got changed in California a little bit. We're still working on it. If you talk to the waste haulers, they will tell you about all kinds of problems they're still having because the regs aren't perfect. They've come a long way since I first started lobbying in 2018. Uh, But not as far as Colorado. Colorado, like the MED, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, they were like, oh, we get this. This is a problem. We never meant to make recycling illegal. And you're mm. telling us people want to have recycling programs where they can take their vapes back and then turn them into new vapes? Great. Let's try and make that possible. So Colorado actually created language in regulations, in statute, to allow uh, dispensaries and other licensees to collect cannabis waste and return it to other licensees for recycling. Basically, EPR. They didn't right. require EPR, uh, extended producer responsibility, but they just opened the door where it actually can happen there. Um, California almost required uh, extended producer responsibility for vape devices in a bill um, this year, but the they exempted tobacco products. And because a lot of federal definitions around tobacco are super broad, they include anything vaporized. So cannabis vaporizers were also exempted. Yeah, if you look at the definition in a lot of like federal tobacco regulations, the way it's worded, it's like that it vaporizes nicotine or any other thing. So like even water vapor theoretically would be considered a tobacco product under some of these federal definitions because they're so ridiculously overbroad. So what was the, I guess I can probably make some assumptions, but what is... Why they won that exemption? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Someone was advocating for that tobacco exemption. It wasn't originally going to be there. I can't say specifically which someone, but someone was advocating for that. And this is not the first time we've seen an attempt to regulate not just cannabis vapes, but vapes in general get derailed by the other side. Again, not trying to denigrate any one company, any one group. I would love for their help in this because they are much more funded than cannabis companies are. They don't pay 280E taxes. They get right. a pretty sweet deal. So far, like in the words of the people I've been working with in the sustainability space, we love that the cannabis companies are working with us. We wish we had that same support from other types of vape companies. A hundred percent. But so far, cannabis is like really on board with sustainability. The California Cannabis Industry Association was backing a really great bill that got passed last session, which requires vape devices in California not to be called disposable. Basically, if you're selling like an all-in-one device where the battery and the cartridge chamber is all attached, you have to call it all-in-one. You can't say disposable because in the consumer's mind, that means, great, I can just throw it in the trash. But actually, that is hazardous waste because of the lithium-ion battery, because of the e-waste involved. It requires special processing. It's a small bill, but it should help a lot in terms of keeping some of these e-waste devices out of the trash. 
And, and because it's a small belt, it doesn't cost the industry much at all. It's just change right. your branding a little bit. So would you say that right now, in terms of the conversation about cannabis and sustainability, is our vapes and like electronic devices kind of top of mind, would you say? Because there's so many other aspects of sustainability in cannabis. It, it depends on who you're talking to. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's so multifaceted. So depending on who you talk to, I would say in terms of the scientific academic research being done, in terms of what a lot of regulators are focused on, they are still heavily focused mm. on cultivation water use, on pesticides, on, I'm going to be honest, illegal cultivation more than legal cultivation. Okay. Most legal cultivators are, are doing quite a good job. I uh, wrote about this, God, like I think 2020 for Cannabis Now, but based off current data, California's cannabis products actually had a lower rate of pesticide contamination than traditional agricultural products. So wow. just going to throw it out there. If we're talking about problems with cultivation, you should go to Driscoll Strawberries before you go to any cannabis farm. In terms of contamination, Actually, John Oliver, if last week tonight, just had a great thing mm -hmm. about food safety. Leafy greens, that's number one, apparently, for could have issues. But if they really want to get real about cultivation problems, it's the leafy green producers, it's not cannabis farms. So like other people, they're going to point to packaging waste. And for me, that that's right. my big thing. I feel like a lot of products are severely overpackaged. I actually just presented a study earlier this month to the ASTM International Symposium on Contaminants in Cannabis. So ASTM International is this group that creates standards for cannabis and all kinds of other industries. Road density, like asphalt density, what can be in rail, rail, railroad materials, like whatever it is, you name it. Interesting. That's what they do. They, they create standards. So like in 2017, ASTM created the first cannabis standard. I've been fascinated with them for a while because it's, oh, great. This is this non-governmental group that just creates scientific-based standards that's awesome. I'm all about What that. a dream. Yeah. So the study I presented was focused on cannabis and hemp packaging. And what I found was after the Department of Cannabis Control in California, the DCC was created, after they put in their regulations, the amount of packaging waste being generated every year. And these are really rough estimates in my study because right. well, before the DCC, no one was collecting data at all. After the DCC, Maybe the data is being collected by metric, but I can't get access to that because I am not a cannabis licensee. When I asked metric, they were just, just shut me down. Oh, you're not a licensee? Nope. So even wow. if they're collecting that data, they're not willing to give it to me. So I based my estimates on like 230 different samples of cannabis packaging that I have because I'm a nerd. And when I buy cannabis products, I will save the packaging. So I have tons of samples of packaging, both before legalization, after legalization. So I created like average weights for each market category, then use sales data to figure out what each market stream would be. So what I found based off my numbers 32% increase in overall waste volume with the regulations. And big reason really seemed to be the requirement for child-resistant packaging. But if you break down the data and look at specific categories, it gets really interesting. Flower products, the mm. weight barely increased at all with child-resistant packaging, which is great, like 7%. Like that's pretty much negligible. Whereas right. vape concentrate products ballooned like crazy. It nearly doubled to about 37 times the packaging weight as product weight. It is the most overpackaged category by far. And a big thing that inflates that is the weight of the cartridges. Think about how much a metal cartridge weighs. 
That's going to be about right. 15 grams for a half gram or maybe a gram of oil. That is a ton of packaging just in the cartridge, not including everything around that cartridge when you bought it. So yeah, it, that is a big factor in driving the waste stream, the vape sector, just because they are so horrendously overpackaged. Mm-hmm. But unless there's a way to decrease the weight of vaporizers, but still keep the quality high for consumer safety, I don't really see a solution other than people vaping less. But People don't want to vape less because they'd rather vape than smoke. So it's a situation where that's where EPR comes in, right? Make the producers responsible. Can you remind listeners again what EPR is? I think that's a helpful term. Extended producer responsibility. So extended producer responsibility is this concept. We have it in paint. We have it in batteries. We have it in all kinds of different industries, carpet, you name it. There's all kinds of industries with EPR requirements where they're the producers. They put this product on the market. And the idea is they're the ones who should be responsible for it for an extended period of time. It's not just on you, the consumer, once you bought it, ha, now it's your trash to deal with. Well, well, no, company, whatever, you put that product on the market, you should have some role in dealing with the waste you've generated by putting that product out there. And just to be clear, it's not just about cannabis vape EPR. This is something that should be there for all kinds of I was just going to say, could you imagine the fast, the fast fashion industry with EPR regulations? Oh yeah. That's a huge one. Oh man. I buy all my stuff at thrift stores. Mm-hmm. If I don't buy it at thrift stores, I'm buying something intentionally very high quality and organic that I'm going to keep Same. for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, oh, I abhor the fast fashion industry. It's just like, especially because if you want to save sickening. money, go to a thrift store, just go to a thrift store, right? buy something that's going to last. It's going to cost you the same amount. Oh. It's nuts. It's and bonkers. It's, fashion is, it's fashion cyclical as well. So it's just go back 20 years. Just dig back to the nineties. You'll be great. Hey there, it's me. If you're digging this conversation so far around conscious living in this episode and you're feeling inspired to make change, that's literally why I'm here. If you want sustainable ways to be sustainable, you hear eco-friendly or green and wonder if you're doing it right. You want to make your diet more earth-friendly by going vegan. You want to live a more connected life, but you're not even sure what that means. No judgment. It is possible to feel excited about making changes to make a difference in the world every single day with your choices, to go vegan and stay vegan without feeling like you're missing anything, or to learn how to make good choices for the planet without feeling stressed. I help folks who are ready to make changes in their life that support their health and the world around them through supportive coaching, practical education, and steps that make you enjoy the process. If that's you, email me at consciouslycarly at gmail.com and let's chat. Back to the episode. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast, but there's an American doll that is from the 90s that was recently released, and I hated every second of it. It was like, it's blow up chair, and it has a choker, and I was like, so did I! This is supposed to be history! (laughs) Does it have a Tamagotchi, too? (laughs) Oh my gosh, the day I killed and lost Uh, my Tamagotchi, uh, uh, it was honestly a a day I'll never forget. And the spinoffs, too. Like, I had the Pokemon-branded one, the Pikachu Tamagotchi. Oh, I never had that. Oh yeah. I was no, I was no, honestly no, traumatized that I killed one and I was like I don't think I should be responsible for another life again. Oh. It's just pixels, you know. I didn't get that then. <laughs> I know, like you think about it, it's it's cruel for kids but at the same time better than a goldfish, right? True, very true. You can't lose a goldfish in the front yard of the library like my Tamagotchi. Rest in peace. That, that too. Yeah. 
first of all, I appreciate you being being willing to define some terms. Totally. Yeah, stuff I is need a so lot of jargon because I'm I'm so in that space. If you need anything defined or spelled out, please, yeah, let me know. And I think that that it's helpful too to be able to have these conversations and explain some of those things because you might read an article about this and think, yeah, EPR and sustainability and cannabis, but I'm like just trying to smoke some weed. So how do you talk to people who are like, dude, I don't know, I'm just trying to get high. I just want to, or even I just need to use it for my XYZ medical condition medicinally. I can't think about this. What is your elevator speech to get people to be thinking about cannabis and sustainability. Yeah. So I go back to like my bud tender days because that, yeah. that was basically where I had to coin that. Someone was coming in asking for a vaporized product. Usually the kind of sell I would give them be like, well, I get that you want to vape. You don't want to smoke. That's totally cool. Have you thought about trying a, a tincture? Mm-hmm. Tinctures affect you very quickly, just like a vape, just like smoking. It's an almost immediate onset, rapid duration, very similar effect profile. It's going to spare your lungs, just like vaping. It's honestly even more discreet than vaping. So if discretion is your concern, yeah. and that was the thing a lot of people mentioned why they wanted to vape and not smoke. They 100%. didn't want to smell like cannabis, but all right, well, how about not smelling like it and not blowing a huge cloud that's going to call attention to yourself? <laughs> or you doing know? like this. Yeah. People like so up. Oh yeah, the sleeve thing. Yeah. The no, sleeve thing or all of a sudden you're like in your shirt or something. You're like, okay, what are we doing here, people? <laughs> I just got this idea you need a hoodie with a little filtered spot where you can just pull. Can you imagine? They have hoodies with headphones in it. I think it's a, a natural oh, yeah. progression and evolution. Oh, I'm sure. I'll have like, to cut this out so no one steals this idea. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, take it. No, but I would give people a sell on tinctures or like transdermals. Transdermal products also pretty quick onset. But the cool thing with t- transdermals is you get like more sustained effects. Transdermals can mm. last for hours, possibly if it's like a transdermal patch. If someone is working and they like that smoking-like effect, a transdermal is giving them constant distribution of cannabinoids over an extended period of time. Um, compared to an edible, edibles, you, it takes a while to set in, it peaks, it drops off. Tra- the way transdermals are supposed to work, I can't speak about every company's product. Yeah, I've never In tried theory, one of those though, the way those products are yeah, check them out if you can find them. They're they're rare. Like they're, they're one of the less yeah. common product types. But the whole idea is it's supposed to give you an even distribution of cannabinoids for an extended period of time. I've had some companies say 12 hours or more. So wow. like you just leave it on. You can leave it on overnight, all day while you're at work or something. Most of them, if not all of them, are waterproof. So if you're swimming or doing something active, shouldn't be an issue. Interesting. Like, I, I don't use them that often, but it's a cool method of ingestion. So that's one of the courses I teach at Oaksterdam, Methods of Ingestion, one of the my favorite classes to teach. Like I teach other classes on bud tending, but it's a whole class about how you get high in different ways. So like <laughs> I pull out different samples, like I'll have my volcano sitting there and stuff like that. I'm yes. Like, this is a volcano. I have slides, but it's much more engaging with way more fun to have props. You have props. When we had an in-person class, we had access to all that. But then we went on Zoom because of the pandemic. And right. it's honestly, it's nice because it's fairer to people around the world. Previously, people would have had to come and relocate to Oakland for a month or more, maybe up to four months in some cases, because the semester classes went on for a while. That's asking people a lot to do that. Whereas now, it's just uh, fun scheduling stuff sometimes. Like we'll have people in, I had a guy in Taipei, we had a guy in Taiwan, people in countries where it's not even really legal there, but they're getting this knowledge because they want to be ready for when it goes legal because they, everyone knows all over the world legalization is coming. Right. It's a matter of time, which is great. Like, I think we'll have a more sustainable planet with that. 
um, like dovetailing back to talking about cannabis packaging, like mm-hmm. hemp packaging, I'm all about it. Right now, there, there are some difficulties because, you know, processing hemp bioresin is different than your traditional plastic resin. Mm. But like, I would love a world where we just phase out your traditional plastics and it's all just hemp or other plant cellulose bioresin. Like there's enough plant waste in the world where we could totally do that. All the Ziploc bags, all that, it could all be bioplastic. Yeah, it's still a plastic, but at least it's not oil and it's being made from plant plant waste that would decay and produce CO2 and other greenhouse gases. There's a lot of benefits to trying to capture that plant waste and use it as something else. It's not a bioplastic, like cannabis waste can be used for like pet bedding, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's some really cool studies showing that you can turn it into rocket fuel even, or other types of fuel. The cellulose can be broken down into fuel. The terpenes can be broken down into fuel. Yeah. Different parts of the plant can become different types of fuel. It's, this is an amazing plant and we're just scratching the surface on how it can save this planet. You go back years. uh, I mentioned Jack Herrera briefly earlier. People don't know him. He wrote the book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Not the old school kid story. The new (laughs) one about hemp legalization. So Jack Herrera, I I say, I want to say it was like, he said there's like over 500 uses of hemp. I might be underselling it, but this book came out in the 80s and based off his research back then, all these different uses, even more now, honestly, like with right. the technology we have, there's so many things we could do with this plant that we're not doing yet, largely because it's not fully legal. Like even right. hemp isn't really like legal in the US. The farm bill made it more legal, but one of the things that the study I presented earlier this month talked about is how much hemp is destroyed every year. Now, and there's, some wiggle room on this, but according to the USDA's number, 20% of the domestic hemp crop is being, it's testing hot. Now, the thing about testing hot, not all hemp that tests hot necessarily is destroyed. So people don't know what that means. Testing hot is above the limit. So the limit for hemp is 0.03%, or 0.3%, 0.3% THC. It's not 3%, it's 0.3%. So it's like non-alcoholic beer. That's right. the best way I think about it. It's around that. I think non-alcohol beer is like half a percent, but same idea. So 0.3 hemp above that generally has to be destroyed unless it's below 1%. In that like 0.3 to 1% range, you can possibly remediate that crop through different techniques. The problem is it might not be cost effective, right? And there's no way to know every farmer's circumstance. While that USDA number is 20% test hot, doesn't mean 20% is destroyed. Some of that could be remediated. We don't know what percent. Even if, even if, let's say half of that's remediated, even if it's just 10%, that is a waste of acres of hemp. That is, yeah, a lot of water, a lot of resources, a lot of time and energy, a lot being wasted. So if we had better remediation methods for that hemp, that would be great for sustainability. And that's Mm -hmm. something we got to figure out. And that's what I mean when I say hemp is not really legal yet. If hemp was legal, we wouldn't be destroying 20% of the crop because, oh no, it tested above 0.3%. Well, that's what I'm like, am I missing something? So why can't that, is it, it really is just a regulation of testing hot and oh, this is too potent now. It doesn't matter if it's testing hot to be used to be made into all these products, right? Or am I missing something? Yeah. If it was made into, bio, but the thing is the rules currently don't say you can make it into bioplastics or, pe- or, ple- or pet bedding or any of that stuff or textiles. Um, what I've been told from folks at the USDA at the federal level on different webinars and stuff is, uh, 
States have the option to say, hey, we'd like to let you do X, Y, Z other things. And then the USDA has to approve them. But the states are the ones who have to move on that. Uh, Mm. One of the the things I'd love to see, there's a study that came out earlier this year about feeding hemp to livestock. I know you're vegan. And I'm definitely, I don't eat red meat. I just do chicken and fish. That's Yeah, but still the crops that are used for animal agriculture are absolutely terrible. Degrading to the also, it's a health thing for the animals as well. Uh, for thousands of years, these animals evolved to have hemp in their diet. Mm. And not just them, but people eating them. And yeah. I had livestock farmers point out, and this is one of the things that really stuck with me and where I where this came from for me. A livestock farmer pointed out to me once, what happened the generation after we took hemp out of animals' diets? Cancer rates went up. All kinds of other disease rates in humans went up because we stopped consuming animals with Now, the interesting thing is the study that came out earlier this year said there were no amounts of CBD or THC that passed on to people who consumed fat from livestock. So, you know, this one farmer's anecdotal story, interesting. It got me me thinking, whoa, you're right. We took it out of the animal's diet. There's something there. Yeah, there's probably something to that. So Mm -hmm. I'm all getting hemp back into animals' diets. I think if we're going to be raising animals, let's feed them the hemp that they should be eating so that they can live as healthy lives as they always used to live. Uh, Even so at says it's fine. Even at like sanctuaries or these places that are exactly. taking in all yeah, these you, other animals, I imagine it could be a cheaper way because those places bless all of their hearts. Are still in a lot of bird seed. Like yeah. birds are definitely eating hemp seeds still because it's yeah. really nutritious. And I imagine it could save these people who are like pouring their life savings into these sanctuaries to yep. save animals. It probably I mean, could be cheaper. Like a partnership with a hemp farm to get less to feed them or something. It, yeah, it could help people on both ends. Exactly. Wow. I'm all for those kind of partnerships happening. But unfortunately, right now, USDA regulations don't say you can feed hemp to livestock. It's but you can feed them hemp. antibiotics you know, for funsies. Well, and even though hemp seed is in bird seed, you can't feed hemp. It's, it's I don't like, know. Make it makes sense. I, honestly, yeah, there's... <laughs> There are so many double standards with cannabis and hemp. It's insane. I honestly, so much respect for anyone who runs a cannabis or hemp business because they're constantly jumping through all these hoops that are changing every single day. I just, I don't know how people Is do that it. really all left over from the war on drugs and the marijuana scare and reefer madness? Like those are all leftover policies from that era, correct? So it depends on which era you're talking about. So there's been different right. eras. There's like the initial push in the 30s and there's definitely some lingering racism and other things yeah. around that. If people don't know, Harry Anslinger, the guy who is the head of the cannabis, the head cannabis narc back in the 30s. Literally the worst. Very racist. Like, I I will not repeat the things he said. There's clips of him, like, about how to wipe out people, like, like genocidal comments about how to wipe out people. It's really scary. It's also, by the way, he was the fun guy who was running alcohol prohibition. Then when he was put out of that job, they gave him the cannabis job. So, yeah, no, he's a terrible human. What a blast. Um. So that was like the earliest wave of cannabis. Then fast forward to 69. I think we all know Tim Leary, the great psychedelic guy. Uh, Tim, Mm -hmm. as I recall the story, Tim Leary was coming back into the U.S. from Mexico. He had some joints hidden on, I hate to say, one of his kids, actually. Mm. He used his kid to mule the drug across because he figured they wouldn't be checked like he was because he's Tim Leary. They were checked. He was caught. Case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. Tim is Leary versus U.S. 1969, if I recall right. And Supreme Court was like, yep, Marijuana Tax Act, that's bullshit. 
we're ruling that invalid. So that 1937 Act, gone. It had been on the books till that case. And then when that happened, there was no federal law making cannabis illegal. And that was where we got the Controlled Substances Act from in 1970 from Richard Nixon. So that case led us into the next phase of cracking down. Then we got Reagan and a whole nother phase of cracking uh-huh. down. So there's been like successive phases where yeah. we just really clamped down. And the Controlled Substances Act, in my opinion, is where things really got terrible. The original Marijuana Tax Act was awful. It didn't make sense. They racism made it happen. Right. Um, and just lack of understanding. Like if you look at the look back at the history, most of the people who voted for it were not aware that it would ban hemp farming. And when they found that out, of they were not. pissed off. Yeah, yeah. Like they were pretty annoyed because yeah. we grow that in my state. What? Wow. Uh, yeah. But it was passed and there wasn't enough will to unpass it. Yeah. So it's just, you look back at the history of cannabis prohibition and it's just been like one mess after another. And mm-hmm. I just keep hoping it's getting better. Like it, it's getting better now since we got legalization in 2012. It's been getting better, even at the federal level. Like we have uh, a, a budget writer protecting us. We don't have an actual mm. law protecting us. And that's the kind of, the, that's again, like how we're not really like legal yet. Even hemp businesses are, you know, re- relying on that. There's this budget yeah. writer saying, hey, if it's legal under state law, don't bust these kind of businesses. But that's just the thing that they're putting in the budget every single time they have to pass a budget. And sometimes people like to cause a fuss over that and say, hey, let's not include it this time. Then they get shouted down. But it's like a headache for these industries they shouldn't have to deal with. Because 90% of the public thinks, medical at least, should be legal. I think it's nearly 70% thinks adult use should be legal. So it's just, come on, you guys, it's a no-brainer issue. Just please treat us like other businesses. And that is going to really help sustainability. Like getting back to the topic of sustainability, people not having to pay 280E taxes. Uh, People aren't familiar with that. We got that out of Reagan, out of the Reagan era of prohibition. So 280E is a section of IRS tax law that basically says, if you sell a federally illegal drug, you don't get to make any standard business deductions. So rent, payroll, you name it, all those things, businesses deduct on their taxes, you just can't. It basically is a way to legally tax a cannabis business out of existence. So, you know, all those people who came in during the green rush thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to strike it big, make a lot of money. Nope. You just made a lot of 280E taxes for yourself and very slim margins, unfortunately. And that's still the the thing a lot of businesses tell me. It was part of my uh, presentation that I did to the ASTM. I surveyed cannabis businesses uh, a couple months ago. And repeatedly, what people were telling me is, I'd love to be more sustainable, but I'm paying these 280E taxes on top of Of state taxes, on top of local taxes. I don't have any money left at the end of the day for sustainability. And that is where government can come in and help by giving people tax incentives, tax breaks, getting rid of the 280E taxes that legal businesses shouldn't have to pay. That's such a no-brainer issue at the congressional level. Just don't repeal 280E, just amend it a little bit. Just say, if it's legal at the state level, no 280E. Here we are. Yeah, it's just updated for where we're at now. It's their job. It's not our job. Like We can't do it for them. We need Congress to act, but I think we all know that Congress just cannot get their act together right now about anything. It's a fair statement. It's a super fair statement. Yeah. Is there, before we end the episode and go into the Patreon only little after party, is there anything that you want to share with listeners that I haven't given you space to do so? Sure. You've done a great job giving me space to talk all about my work on sustainability. If anyone listening, you know, is running a cannabis company that's interested in sustainability and Mm. wants to work together, 
happy to work with you on whatever your thing is, whether it's vapes or something else, cannabis, hemp, for anyone who's listening and wants to know more about cannabis. Canna Beginners is a series that I'm doing in high times. So canna, like cannabis, beginner, like beginners. So just look up on high times, can a beginner, you'll get to my series. And it's a mix of cannabis culture stuff, cannabis science stuff, cannabis history, history of some famous cultivars like Blue Dream. Also earlier this year, I was a co-author on the Bud Tender's Guide, a reference manual for cannabis consumers and dispensary professionals, which you can <laughs> find on Amazon. That was my Bud Tending class at Oaksterdam got turned into a book. So I love that. I can't wait to, to look up the High Times you know, series. It's great. Check it out. I don't know if you're into punk rock music or not, or any sort of alternative music. The history of Acapulco Gold. I had no idea that Acapulco Gold funded like the alternate music scene on the West Coast, like back in the early days. Crazy. Like the things that so I learned from writing these articles, I love it. I go into it thinking like, yeah, I, I know about this a bit, but I always come out the other side knowing so much more. And that's, I love it. And, and that's what I love doing for my readers as well. Um, you know, I will link all of that in the show notes so people can oh, find it can, easy. Thank you so much for having me on today. Like it's been a great conversation, Carly. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to an episode of Consciously Cannabis. If you're not ready for this episode to be over, don't worry. Every Consciously Cannabis episode has bonus content. Sometimes guests and I will smoke together. Maybe you'll see some of my friends and I toke up. Who knows? Go to patreon.com slash consciouslycarly and get all the bonus content. And thank you so much for listening to this new series. If you enjoyed it, remember to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Share it with a friend. Tell someone you know. Anything helps. And I so appreciate it. See you next time.